Welcome to Southern Fried Fantasy, a podcast for readers and writers, where Southern authors talk about books set in the region they call home. Book lovers beware, your TBR pile is about to get taller than high cotton. All right. Welcome back uh, to another episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. And this week, I am so excited. We have Meredith R. Stoddard with us. Uh, Just an absolute delight to have her here. So, uh, Meredith, let's get the ball rolling. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Um, Well, I am an author. I live in Virginia, um, but... I am the child of Tar Heels. So I, while I grew up in Virginia, I'm sort of, uh, my blood runs Carolina blue and um, my parents are both from small towns in North Carolina. So I've um, sort of half in one state, half in the other, um, as far as uh, culturally. Um, But uh, I'm, I went to university of North Carolina and there I studied folklore and it was there that I started um, really getting inspired by a lot of the stuff that I studied. So I, um, you know, over the, over the years after, um, I graduated, I just could not stay away from folklore. And so yeah. I ended up, you know, writing fiction inspired by folklore from both yeah. North Carolina and Scotland and, uh, all points all right. in between. <laughs> yeah, no, we're definitely going to dive deeper into that. Uh, first though, uh, so I'm not, uh, I, I've been to Virginia a few times, um, mm-hmm. North Carolina, really though, only to kind of pass through, uh, would you for, so one thing I really like to dive into on this is to show that, you know, the South is not a monolithic cliche, you mm-hmm. know, that every region is very different from each other. Uh, and so, you know, I, I live here in Alabama and my experience is probably quite different from the experience that you've had growing up in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but since you have such strong ties to North Carolina as well, I assume you've done a lot of time visiting family and such there. Yes. Uh, what would you say that they're dramatically different or there, there's some noticeable differences between Virginia and North Carolina? Or are they somewhat similar? Um, just for really, like an outsider. Yeah, I think it really depends. I didn't see a lot of difference growing up. Um, but then when I went to college in North Carolina, all the people who were from North Carolina kind of looked at me like I was an alien coming yeah. from Virginia. You know, you're from up north. And, <laughs> um, and admittedly, I grew up in the, in the D.C. exurbs. So, um, you know, we're a little bit more in Virginia. You can kind of divide the state between the southern part and the um, sort of part around D.C. because. Yeah. It's, it's decidedly different. Um, but, um, you know, down in North Carolina, I don't know. It's the cultural difference that I felt was more small town versus suburbs. Yeah. Um, cause my parents are, like I said, both from small towns. My mom is from Wake Forest, which is just North of Raleigh. Mm-hmm. And my dad is from Clinton, which is in the Eastern part of the state. And, yeah. um, you know, it just, it, it, that part felt different. Like the, yeah. you know, that sort of 
small town village feel where everybody knows everybody's business and um, <laughs> forget, everybody goes to the Ill. same church or the same two churches yeah, and, you know, stuff like that. So um, that was a noticeable difference yeah. for me, more so than I think the, the culture geographically. Yeah. Uh, talking about the the same church or the same two churches reminds me of an interesting anecdote. Uh, I have family that lives in far West Alabama, uh, mm-hmm. right, right on the border with Mississippi. And it's an antebellum, uh, like the town uh, avoided getting burned down through the civil war. So it has a lot of still the antebellum homes are still in existence there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the population is very, very, very small. And they actually have three churches that predate the civil war. Uh, but there's not enough people to support three churches. So yeah. they move their service every Sunday to a different <laughs> church. <laughs> so everyone goes to the same three churches. <laughs> wow. So it's like one congregation just yep. shifting around. That's, yep. that's interesting. Yeah. 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 So you can't, can't let the churches go to ruin. So no, well, um, at least they're preserving the buildings. They are. They are. There's a, there's a strong uh, historical community there that really mm-hmm. has made a pronounced effort to try and maintain some of that history. That's um, yeah, no. So, uh, so let's, let's dive into your books a bit. Uh, okay. So uh, I've, I've read, I haven't read them yet, but I've read, I was on your website reading the blurbs, very interested. Mm-hmm. Um, as my last name being Magoo, being a, a Scotch Irish fa- family, the, mm-hmm. the, the heavy interplay there of like Scottish heritage was definitely caught my eye. So, yeah. So um, North Carolina is, was uh, in the colonial era, had a very high concentration of Scots immigrants. And um, a lot of that was displaced Jacobites after the rising in 1745. And um, most of them settled in the Cape Fear region, but some moved to the West and got kind of pushed to the mountains to Appalachia. And so um, Sarah, the main character of my series is a folklorist who kind of studies the influence of Scottish and Gaelic, specifically Gaelic folklore, on the folklore of the New World in um, Appalachia and and other parts of North Carolina. And um, she is intrigued. Now, her grandmother emigrated um, in the 1930s um, before the war uh, for reasons that become apparent as you read the series. Um, and she moved from Scotland to North Carolina. So she retained a lot of that Gaelic folklore from Scotland and, uh, taught Sarah a song when she was a little girl. And so when Sarah grows up after her grandmother passes away and she becomes a folklorist, she wants to trace the origin of this song. Hmm. And, um, and she starts, looking into this song she travels to nova scotia and finds another version of it um and uh wants to travel to scotland um which she eventually does it later in the in the series um to search for the origin of the song but in the course of uncovering the origin uh, or searching for the origin of this song she also uncovers a lot of family trauma a lot of um some mysteries about mm-hmm. uh her people um, and her mother's people, um, and, uh, runs into, of course, a lot of interesting characters and some very interesting folklore. And her grandmother also was a moonshiner, which is, um, a lot of fun. 
<laughs> oh yeah, to yeah. Uh, talk about. I love that. I, I'm definitely intrigued by the the musical nature um, mm-hmm. of the book because uh, my background I, I have a bachelor's in anthropology and a uh, master's in music industry. And uh, yeah. And so actually when I was in grad school, um, when I was thinking about doing the, I ended up not doing the thesis track, but um, like what my, the idea that I had for basically my thesis was I wanted to talk about the influence of uh, Gaelic music on Southern music, you know, how, how, what a heavy influence it is on genres like bluegrass say. Mm -hmm. And so I, I love, I just love that. So there's uh, a lot fun. there. I mean, you know, I um, I studied a lot of Gaelic song leading into you know writing these books, and then you know you can fo- you can follow a line from some of the um, Gaelic ballads to you know English to child ballads and English to um, some of the ballads that came over and mm-hmm. are still sung um in uh in Appalachia Maddie Groves is a big one that you can literally just follow that line yeah um you know back for hundreds of years which yeah. is amazing yeah no I, I love I love that um I think that's something that I, I feel like gets kind of overlooked like you know of all the things that the south is known as a cliche for I feel like we don't get enough credit for our music you know I mean oh absolutely so, I mean, you know, the birth of blues, you know, birth of rock and roll, so much of, I mean, the, the uh, everywhere I go, there's music, you know, yeah. we, we, we are a very, you know, musical culture. Um, and it's, you know, we're such a melting pot that it, you know, the influence on our music comes from all over. And so I just really like seeing how that, how that influences coming on down to today, where it's influencing your books, you know, like mm-hmm. I just love seeing that interplay. Well, yeah. And I love, you know, I love, I mean, I love that sort of blending of things, but also just to see how much um, kind of survives and how much of those traditions still, you know, are with us. And I love to see musicians now embracing those traditions and kind of carrying that torch on. Yeah. I've, there's definitely been a, at least what I've noticed a bit of a, like a folk revival that's mm-hmm. really kind of uh, helped bring a lot of these songs back to life. Uh, yeah. And I know like there's even a, uh, we have a, a local uh, punk band that uh, a couple of their guys have a side project where they, they go uh, perform as a, as a duo doing, uh, you know, traditional Irish music, you know? So that's awesome. Yeah. I feel like the internet is such an equalizer when it comes to being able to disseminate um, artwork of whatever kind, music, books, you know, whatever that you have room for things like for, you know, smaller artists who might not have been heard through the noise of the sort of big business music machine, yeah. um, you know, have a chance that independent artists like that have a bigger chance now, yeah. um, I think to get their music out there and, um, and do something with it and find the audiences for um, you know, for that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I, there's a lot of parallels there with the, with the publishing industry, you know, absolutely. Um, I, I, I would, I'd say that the uh, the music industry 
got a little bit of a jump on it compared to the publishing industry. Like I, I feel like it was a little earlier uh, in the, in the process, was it more widely accepted to be kind of that indie musical mm-hmm. artist, but uh, the publishing industry is definitely caught up. Uh, and so like just the parallels there also um, it's just, it's, it's glorious to see. Cause I mean, you got to think uh, like just myself, for example, you know, I'm not traditionally published and without mm-hmm. uh, without, you know, something like uh, Amazon KDP, I don't know if my books would ever have seen, uh, the light of day outside of my computer, you know? Yeah. So, uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I feel like we, I mean, it's discoverability becomes an issue when you have so many voices, (laughs) but at the same time, I, you know, you eventually find your audience. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, Scott Johnson, the podcaster, um, at uh, the Frog Pants Network, but um, yeah. I heard him give a talk like years ago where he just said, just put it out there. You know, your audience will find you eventually. Just do it and keep doing yeah. it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that's where I th- I think that's where what really def- separates 99% of the successful people from the not successful is just the successful people stick with it. Yeah. You know, it. it anyone who goes in there expecting to be an overnight success, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. You know, you gotta, you gotta be prepared to, you know, grind the wheel for, for years, you know, in most cases. It's a long tail. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, other than the, other than the, the musicality, were there some other elements of Southern culture that you kind of wanted to showcase as you were uh, writing these books? Um, absolutely. And we talk about, we talk a little bit about um, in the book, uh, when I say we, I mean, like Sarah, the main character mm-hmm. and I, um, and we talk about kind of the, the food and mm. how we approach people and things like that. Um, you know, she's, uh, she's joined on this search by a Scottish folklorist. So we at least have have kind of an outsider that she can explain a few things to. Yeah. Um, like why you don't just walk up to somebody's house in Appalachia without announcing you're there first. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. You know, things like that. And you don't just, um, you know, come to somebody's house and immediately start talking business and, um, you know, all kinds of different cultural yeah. things. But then like food, like having, you know, there's one point where she teaches him what hoop cheese is and why you should <laughs> have it on top of your apple pie you know yeah yeah um, there's a lot of that and and then also getting into and researching um moonshine and moonshiners because there's a she goes to do some field work and meets up with this character who's a moonshiner um and he's um he's just so much fun and uh he's very kind of it was a little bit modeled after popcorn sutton i don't know if you're familiar with him yeah uh, yeah yeah, wonderful youtube videos uh of him and just getting a feel for you know the pacing and the attitude and the kind of feel of people like that is a lot of fun and um and it was a wonderful thing to um to do and research yeah uh what so um you can't see through the microphone but i'm a i'm a portly lad and uh 
so is what what is your favorite uh southern dish like what, oh. what's what speaks to your to your to your soul it's hard it is it is <laughs> that no. is a hard choice because I'll, I'll, I'll start i'll start i'm i'm right. definitely a barbecue guy i uh i am a pulled pork uh right. with a, are with we a talking carolina sauce. style or like no well we we do it uh like my family cooks them and we do an above ground pit uh cook it for like 24 hours in an above ground pit and uh just you know just over hickory uh typically or pecan and uh Mm -hmm. then just you know pull the meat and put on a uh, delightful vinegar-based barbecue sauce okay that sounds very similar i mean my um i had a great uncle who had a barbecue restaurant in north carolina Mm. and it was um you know vinegar and red pepper sauce and I'm uh, jealous pork and oh, it's so good. You're making me hungry now. Right. Um, and <laughs> with coleslaw on top. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's probably the thing I probably get more nostalgic for than anything else, just because it's getting harder to come by. Yeah. Good barbecue. <laughs> as true. you know, the megalopolis sort of spreads southward. Yeah. Um, these places that where we used to get it are drying up yeah. and um, oh, that's so that we, becomes we, difficult. We have uh, uh, a local, our, our local uh, minor league baseball team uh, mm-hmm. is the, uh, the biscuits and uh, they at the stadium, you can get a all beef Frank with pulled pork huh. with barbecue sauce and coleslaw on top of the dog like it's all just one one amazing hot dog so if you if you find yourself in montgomery during baseball season i will buy you uh a a tasty dog (laughs) i will hold you to that yeah you know i mean i love barbecue i love my grandmother makes a great um banana pudding um you know and in north carolina we have field peas and i cannot get them in virginia and i don't understand why yeah, is that but like a is that like a black eyed pea kind of? It is. It's not. It's um, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, they're they're smaller than black eyed peas, and they're mm-hmm. sort of greenish brownish. Yeah. Um, and of course, like good any good beans, you cook them up with bacon or fatback oh, yeah. or you know something <laughs> like that. Oh yeah. And um, and they just are delicious. And I, that's something that I feel like is distinctly North Carolina because I've never yeah. seen it anywhere else. And I just love them. I remember sitting on the porch with my grandmother shelling them when I was a kid. And, yeah. You know, they're just so good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have shelled many a black eyed pea or a purple hole mm-hmm. pea um, growing up and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so, your fingernails are green when you're yeah, done. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so, all right. Well, I'm gonna have to look up field peas because I do, I do love a, a a good pea. So that that may be something that's around here, but I'm just not aware of it. Yeah. So I'll, I'm gonna have to do some some digging. Um. All right. So you you touched on it earlier that you're you got uh, your minor was in folklore, mm-hmm. and obviously your your main character and one of the other primary characters are folklorists. Yeah. Um. So is the uh, uh would you say that the bulk of your ideas come from folklore like that or are is it are there a lot of ideas from your own life that you try and work in here like kind of what's the what's the mix there um it's a bit of it's definitely a bit of both i i 
um I, I think the characters probably come more from me but the mm-hmm. um but the you know the folklore part is just fascinating to yeah. me i'm i grew i live now and grew up in fredericksburg virginia which is sort of the nexus of several major civil war battles so uh i've I've, I've been there (laughs) okay because of that yeah yeah and my um uh the washingtons also lived here so we have everything from the colonial era to the civil war to you know i mean there's so much history Mm -hmm. around here and so i've you either when you grow up here you either hate it or you're fascinated by it yeah and I am fascinated by it. And so I love those little tiny bits of like, you know, micro history that, um, you know, that you don't get taught in history class Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. Today I was, um, I did a little thing, a little video for TikTok today about Blackbeard in nor- the North Carolina coast. And, um, you know, and I was looking up some other local legends and things like that, that it just, you know, that stuff just excites me. Yeah. And, uh, and it's fascinating to see explanations for things and, you know, the stories that last and what lingers and, um, and how it changes over generations and generations too. Oh yeah. No, uh, growing up, uh, I, my dad was a uh, huge history buff. So we, uh, we took trips, uh, up to Virginia to the battlefields, um, and so I, yeah, I definitely get what you're saying. Like, there's just so, so much history. I mean, there, cause it's, you know, a, you know, most people outside of, of, you know, the South probably, you know, they just have the kind of the cursory, you know, knowledge mm-hmm. of the civil war, you know, they might, they might, you know, if they pay much attention to history class, they might know about Sherman's March and things like that. But really, I mean, the the bulk of the war was in Virginia, you know, that's where, that's where so much of it was. It wasn't really till later on that it even started getting into the more Southern parts of, of the South. And just so like, literally like every inch of Virginia is just loaded with so much history. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, well, when I was a kid, we pulled a bayonet out of a tree in our backyard. Like it's, what? you know, that close to, I, I, grew up near the chancellorsville battlefield so it's you know there's always something yeah and, that's that's um, awesome <laughs> yeah it was it was pretty neat um but uh but it's also i mean you know you also end up with like your you know uncles and granddad at cookouts debating battles from the war you know yeah. and like guys it's been <laughs> over for a long time <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. but it's you're going to have to listen to why, you know, Stonewall Jackson was shot by his own men or something like that, because yeah. they've got the whole story and they want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, so uh, you, you said that a lot of the, the characters kind of kind of come from you. Is there a particular mm-hmm. character that you really identify with the most? Um, in this book series, I would, uh, I would probably say Sarah, um, who is our main character, um, at least in attitude, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, in like background and stuff, Sarah's roommate, Amy, who is a significant part of the story, um, I think is probably closer to, uh, to my background and she's, 
uh, she's from the Piedmont. She's grew up mm. in a small town. Um, and, uh, and I actually have written a book about Amy too, that hasn't been published yet. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, but it's like, uh, I don't know if you know, Diana Gabaldone who wrote Outlander. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she, she talks about, you know, villains like Black Jack Randall and she's, and, um, how she'll hear readers talk about how terrible they are. And, um, you know, and she points out, well, that's me. You know, I'm the villain. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Even though it came from my brain. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's the thing that, you know, we all have to remember is that all of these characters are a little bit us in some right. way or another, you know, like Sarah yeah. might be, it might have similar interests to me and Amy might have a similar background to me and Dermot, who's the Scottish folklorist that goes around with Sarah. He's got a bit of a temper and I, goodness knows I do too. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, they're all little aspects of us. Yeah. And I know, uh, like just in my own personal experience, like it's, it's sometimes difficult to not write too much of yourself into a character Yeah. sometimes, you know, like, I, like my main character is, a, is uh, on the face of it, a very different person from me. Um, mm-hmm. And so sometimes when I'm writing him, it, I, I have to be like, Whoa, wait, 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 is that what I would do or what he would do and have to kind of, you know, sit there and think it through and, you know, yeah. Make sure I'm not just doing a self insert, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard when you when you're putting you know bits from your history or you know bits of your personality into a character, you know. Absolutely. So, um, so without if if you can do it without uh, giving much in the way of spoilers, I know there. So, can you describe kind of maybe some of the supernatural elements in this series? Um, yeah, without giving too many spoilers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, um, I don't want I don't want to ruin it for folks. But. Sure, sure. First, well, first of all, the thing to understand um, about the series is that um, the jumping off point when I started writing this series was um, if Arthur, King Arthur, is the once mm-hmm. and future king, what would happen if that future part was now, yeah. and what would that look like? So we're blending Arthurian legend with Celtic lore and stuff like that. So mm. once you get deeper into the books, there's all kinds of magic and okay. um, stuff oh. that's happening. But within the first book, um, Sarah, the main character, um, see what one of the inciting incidents um, in the book is when Sarah actually sees her mother who died when she was very young. Um, and she sees her like walking into a forest and follows her and is shown this sort of prophetic vision, if you will. Um, and so a lot of that is just Sarah trying to figure out where she fits in all of this and why she's seen this thing. And, you know, and, uh, there's a lot of other trauma involved with her mother. Um, so it's the supernatural elements very much come in with prior generations of Sarah's family kind of talking to her in various supernatural ways. Okay. I, I, I love that. And um, 
I definitely love the uh, this the interplay of uh, Arthurian legend with you know tying it in with like you know Scottish folklore and things mm-hmm. like that. Like one of my favorite books when I was younger was I had a book of it was the Celtic legends of King Arthur. Okay, um, and it was kind of like uh, some of the like from like the the Welsh tradition or like mm-hmm. the Irish tradition of legends about King Arthur. And I just love that so much because like, you know, growing up, we were a family definitely had a lot of pride in, you know, our, our Irish heritage. And so mm-hmm. having a book like that around to kind of tie it like, oh, King Arthur's real cool. Oh, well, here's an kind of an Irish take on King Arthur. And I just love that so much. So I, I, I love, I, I, I'm really looking forward to reading this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, I, I, in addition to, of course, all the Scottish and, um, Scottish and North Carolina folklore. I read a lot of um, analysis of like Arthurian legends and um, Celtic lore and um, things like that. And how the Holy Grail is very similar to the Celtic cauldron of plenty. And, um, you know, all this sort of blending of ideas um, that comes when different cultures kind of meet like that. You know, we talked about the food and the, um, and music, but there's also this in the legends because there's, because it's very blurry, right? Whether Arthur was Welsh or Scottish or English, Mm -hmm. um, it's very, you know, it's all very murky what Thomas Mallory, um, you know, or Taliesin really pulled all of that from. And so, you know, it's, and that's sort of, soup of different cultural lore that got blended together um and produced this story that has stuck with us for so many yeah hundreds of years that um it's fun to kind of tease out you know where those where those elements go and where they came from yeah i love that uh you, you you mentioned that you did a lot of research into north carolina folklore uh, was there a particular like story or a bit of folklore that kind of stood out to you uh, in that? Maybe not necessarily something that made it into the book, or if it did, you know, feel free. But just something so that you know. Um, okay, I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot about North Carolina in, in just in general. So I'd love to, I'd love yeah. to hear something. Um, as far as North Carolina goes, it's a lot of just the cultural um, influence that goes into it. Um, of just kind of growing up in Appalachia and, um, and where, you know, Sarah living around all of that and stuff like that. It, I found that particularly fascinating because, because my family is from, um, from, or my dad's family, I should say, is from the Eastern part of the state around the sort of Cape Fear River basin, Mm -hmm. which is where most of the Scottish settlers were. And if you look in my you know, family history, like uh, we have surnames like Bell and Gregory and, um, and Calhoun and stuff like that, that are all just, um, straight from Scotland. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was, there was a section there around the Cape Fear River Valley that was Gaelic speaking for a long time, like into the 19th century. Oh, wow. Um, so that, that part particularly fascinated me. And there's a, um, there's a Gaelic charm in the in the state archives in North Carolina called um, Dougal McFarland's charm, um, and I I worked something similar to that into the second book in the series because um, it's a little sort of magic charm that was 
written on a piece of paper and rolled up and sewn into the lining of a coat. Um, and then yeah. found, you know, like yeah. 200 years later. Um, but, oh, that's so awesome. uh, and that was particularly fascinating, but there are so many good folk tales. Oh, and, um, also in Chapel Hill, um, there's the story of Peter Dromgoul, who was a um, student at Carolina who, uh, had got into a bit of a love triangle and had a duel, uh, oh. with the other gentleman, um, who I don't think anybody can remember his name, but, um, <laughs> and was shot, um, on this particular hill in Chapel Hill and they, um, laid him out on a rock and he died and the legend has it that you can still see his blood stain, like on the rock, like it's yeah. going to wash away, like, you know, 170 yeah. odd years later. Uh, <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. yeah. But there's, I mean, there are tons of great, there's tons of pirate lore around the coast. There's yeah. um, the devil's tramping ground is one that I love. That's a clearing in, um, in the woods. I can't remember exactly where it is, but um, basically nothing grows inside it. And so the legend has it that the devil comes there at night to pace around while he yeah. thinks about ways to, tempt people or something yeah so um there's all kinds of you yeah. know good juicy folk tales like that yeah no here in alabama we have a, a ghost story about a uh uh <clears throat> during the civil war a uh, a man was hung by he was thought to be a deserter and the the local home guard unit uh hung him as a deserter mm-hmm. but he was so tall that his feet touched the ground and so a man with a crutch uh, dug a hole basically under his feet. So he would hang. And it's one of those, the, the, the legend goes at that spot, nothing, uh, nothing would grow there. And, uh, and like, like even pine straw would not rest there. Um, And it supposedly, you know, it's, you could go there up until, uh, I think it was like 20 years ago, they eventually paved over that area. Like the highway mm-hmm. became four lane and they, they paved over it. But uh, up until then, apparently you could even go so far as to like set your uh, tent up on top of it and sleep there uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, fill, fill the hole with dirt, put your tent there. And then in the morning, the hole would be empty. So, oh, wow. yeah. So neat, yeah. neat, neat little, little legend. Um, all right. Let's let's talk about your uh, your writing process because, like, looking on your website, mm-hmm. uh, I see that you really like to uh, uh, work with authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw saw that. Um, so I just wanted to dive into your process a little bit. Are you more of a plotter? Or are you more of a pantser? I am definitely a plotter. I am a detailed mm-hmm. plotter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Now that doesn't mean that I'm like a slave to my outline. Like if something pops up while I'm writing, I will follow yeah. that plot bunny and, you know, but I got to I, I still need that roadmap to tell me where I'm going. Yeah. When I, you know, when I chase down the um, subplot or whatever. And sometimes I'll pause if, if something comes to me while I'm writing and I think I need to like work that into the plot. I'll sometimes mm-hmm. pause it and adjust my outline to yeah. include that um, going forward. So, uh, but I, I'm, I spent 
over a decade in the corporate world writing training material and I got very yeah. used to writing with an outline so yeah. <laughs> um, I need to have that outline yeah um, I, I'm, I'm a technical writer for the state so I, I feel that <laughs> yeah so I but what I do is I first you know kind of do the brainstorming part where I just sort of throw it all out there. I actually have, um, I'm in my writing shed right now and I actually have a blackboard on the wall that I'll, you know, draw things out on or write yeah. things out on. Um, and then I will do a beat sheet, um, a save. I don't know if you've read save the cat writes a novel. Yeah. Um, so I'll well, do one no, of those. I, no, I, I, I'm from, I haven't read it, but I am familiar with it. I highly recommend it. And I will sit down and write out like a beat sheet for, um, for the book that I'm writing. And then I'll break that beat sheet down and go scene by scene. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't like sort things into chapters until they're already written. And I know yeah. like how long things are going to be and where's a good place to stop and yeah. um, stuff like that. But I, but I just use that list of scenes and then I usually write chronologically unless something really like grabs me and yeah. you know and i think about an argument that i know my characters are going to have like further on down the line i'll just jot the dialogue down yeah and then come back to it later and mm. fill in all the description and you know action and stuff yeah. like that i i don't when you're talking about you don't know how long the chapter is you know mm. until you until you've written it that was a that was a bad habit i had to break um i i went to some writing workshops uh and was basically, you know, they were, they were giving advice on like how to plot out or how to, uh, it was, it was called like 28 days to a novel and, um, mm. things like that. And, uh, part of the, part of it was they kind of, it kept coming up like, you know, 2000 word chapters, you know, this, the, the guy was like, I write, you know, each chapter is about 2000 words. And, and, uh, now while I wasn't married to the idea of 2000 words, I did get bizarrely married to the idea of my chapters kind of need to be the same length and uh, for a long time there you know i was stretching stuff or cutting stuff to fit an arbitrary number that i had more or less just pulled out of thin air mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that was one of my early bad habits i had to break uh and so i i, th I think that's something that a lot of people don't talk about and i'm, I'm glad you brought that up uh that a chapter is as long as it needs to be <laughs> Exactly. I think I probably learned that from Lewis Carroll, um, really, yeah. because if you've read, read like through the looking glass, there are, he'll have an entire chapter that's just a phrase, you yeah. know, and then there's another one that's like 20 pages because <laughs> that's how long it took to make that point yeah. um, in the story. So I don't have any chapters quite that short, but um, I'm willing to go beyond the usual like 2,2500 word limit if yeah. I'm telling, you know, an important part of the story. Yeah. Uh, so building on that, do you have a, what, what's a piece of advice that you would like to give to someone who may be struggling? Like they're, you know, they, they haven't finished that first novel. They're kind of struggling with it. What's, what's something that you might give them to kind of help them out? Um, I, well, I would say make a plan. I mean, one of the one of the reasons why I'm a plotter is because I need that roadmap so that mm -hmm. I, when I get into the squidgy middle bit, you know, like the fun and games and stuff like that, <laughs> I don't get lost, um, you know, or get bogged yeah. down with the details of different parts. I can go back to that outline. Um, but even more than that, if you make a really high level plan um, so that because 
I think writers, especially when we're relatively new, we get an, an inspiration for a story or a character or something. And we just dive in and go, you know, and that, and that works to a certain point, but when it comes to like finishing a big project, like a book, I think you, you need to sometimes step back and say, okay, where is this going? What genre is it? Who's my target audience? Yeah. Um, what's the theme? And, um, you know, and what are my goals for this project? Just like the super high level stuff mm-hmm. so that that can inform the decisions that you're making. And it gives you something to refer back to, um, you know, so that when you get bogged down or you get stuck or whatever, you can go back and look and be like, okay, this is where I'm going. This is my, my, you know, end goal. So let's look back at this. Um, Yeah. Like I know I I view the, like the plotter pantser debate as a spectrum, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like me, I'm like a, I'm like a 15% plotter, 85% pantser, you know? Um, And I, you know, everyone's different. And, but I don't know anyone who is a 100% pantser that's gotten a book published, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, I, you got, you got to have an idea of, of where you're going, you know, and I, I just, I, now I'll eventually probably interview someone who's just going to prove me wrong, but um, <laughs> I just, I really feel like you're, you know, you're making a, a great point there is like, even if you aren't going to sit down and plot out necessarily chapter by chapter, you got to know where you're going, at least big yeah. picture. So, mm. all right. Uh so like I said earlier, I have a background in music industry. Mm-hmm. And one question I love to ask, uh, do you listen to music when you write? And if so, what kind of music do you like to listen to? Uh, I love this question because I am a writer who listens to music. And um, I know a lot of writers who are like, I can't do that. I can't hear anything else except yeah. my characters, you know, or it's going to distract me. But no, I love Um, I love listening to music while I write and it's the, whatever music I listen to is whatever is going to get me through that scene, you know, whatever fits the mood for that scene or the character or what have you. I have a whole, I have playlists for different characters and different emotions and um, uh, you know, just music to fit whatever. Yeah. And I'll even listen to music I don't really like as long <laughs> as it gets me inside, you know, a particular character's head. Yeah. Yeah. Um No, so, I yeah, but it's easy with Sarah because she's she's all, you know, folk music and ballads and nice. stuff like that. So. Yeah. Yeah, love that. I I have for my main series, I have a playlist for it that's all uh, bluegrass, folk, mm-hmm. Americana, that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of builders and the butchers and dead South yeah. and stuff like that. And then, but for everything else, I write to the same thing. I write to uh, just one band, no matter what else I write. I, I listen to this uh, wordless uh, doom jazz band from Germany. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, but it's one of those, like it never gets me in the necessarily in the mood. Cause I don't write anything that, really fits funeral doom jazz music but it's it's one of those like it's just comforting to me like I, mm-hmm. i've trained my brain that i'm writing this is what i listen to yeah um, chopin for yeah. me i anytime that's like 
anytime I get a little bit blocked up, a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm not sure where I'm going. There's yeah. a playlist on Spotify called the dark side of Chopin. And oh. it's like magic. It's like a yeah. key to unlock things. Yeah. Well, that's, that's advice I give to people who struggle with writer's block or mm -hmm. just finding the focus to write is always, if you're get jammed up, listen to the same, the same music, uh, sit in the same spot, burn a candle with the same scent and your brain, you eventually train your brain. It's like Pavlov's dog of writing. You know, you yeah, train your brain. Yeah, those rituals are important. Yeah. Oh, I'm hearing this music. Oh, okay. Create and it gets your creativity. Kind of jump starts it. Mm -hmm. So I, I love, I love, and I'm gonna have to check out that playlist because that sounds up my alley. Um, yeah, I actually share my playlists with my readers too. Yeah, um, I, which I, is yeah, fun. I did. I did that. I have a if you can you can find on my what you can find a link uh, mm -hmm. to the playlist that I write to the the, the Marsh stuff uh, related to that. Uh, you you have book club questions on your website, which is a fantastic yeah. idea. I love that <laughs> idea so much, and I. You're the first author that I've seen do that in a while. Um, hmm. And uh, I'm, you know, to be fair, I don't spend a ton of time just digging through authors' websites. <laughs> um, but I just love that idea so much. Uh, and I like writers, if you're out there, you know, here's a great idea. <laughs> to it's a great idea. I love talking to book clubs and usually they are happy to, you know, get some suggested questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause it saves them from having to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No. And I mean, and think about, I mean, for those who are maybe struggling with marketing at all, just think of a book club with six or seven people in there that they, mm -hmm. they're all reading your book, talking about your book and are probably going to talk about it to one or two other people. I mean, that's such a jump start on your word of mouth right there, yeah. you know? And yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, the, the word of mouth is what's going to make or break your book. Absolutely. Um, so having a captive audience that's forced to read your book and then discuss it, you you can't you can't pay for that kind of uh, <laughs> exposure. Yeah, um, it's true. <laughs> yeah. So all right. So uh, a uh, hero of mine uh, from North Carolina, uh, John Hartness, uh, mm -hmm. he says uh, he makes the point that. There, no matter how fast he writes, he cannot keep up with what a person reads. You know, reading is faster yeah. than writing. So, uh, we should always, as writers, be you know supporting each other, sharing each other's stuff. So, I have two questions for you. One, who is an author hero of yours, and then who is an author that we should be checking out that we might not be? Oh gosh, um, author hero is hard. Uh, I probably have to go with, um, Diana Gabaldon again. Yep. I, you know, she, it was reading Outlander that kind of inspired me to research more about, um, Gales in North Carolina. Yeah. And that sort of sent me down the, um, curiosity rabbit hole that got yeah. me to, um, to these books. So she's, and I mean, you know, who doesn't want to sell 25 million copies or 35 million copies or how you know, many she sold of yeah. Outlander. Yeah. You know, got it. Got <laughs> you know, and have you know, a TV adaptation. Right. Right. And which my, stuff. I mean, yeah. Which my awesome. girlfriend literally just started watching. So I've, oh, I've, well, I've seen a couple episodes in the background. So it's yeah. I mean, the books are great. The show is pretty good. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, the, but I highly recommend the books. And in yeah. fact, my husband and I both discovered, oh, well, I discovered the books the year we got married and um, my husband, I, I kind of talked him into reading them and then um, he got hooked and we've sort of both read them. Yeah. And the, if you hear her talk about the series, it is the story of a marriage for, you know, decades. And um, I, and I think it builds great relationships. Yeah. So well, I highly I, recommend I, that you both read them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can say my, uh, my mom read them and mm -hmm. then got my, uh, my engineer uh, kind of hard ass dad to, to read them. And he loved them, you yeah. know? Well, if the, you love history. Yeah. And he does. These are, and that's the thing, you know, a natural fit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So who's, who's someone that you think we should be checking out that we, that we aren't. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you might know him because you love music and folklore and all of this stuff, but um, Alex Bledsoe writes a wonderful series um, about it, these people in Tennessee, um, the Tufa series. And is it the hum? So yes. The hum and the shiver and yeah. um, wisp of a thing. And yeah. Gathering around. And I have not, I have not read them, but that they are, they're on my TBR. You will uh, love them. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. It's like the, they're like these mythical people living in this mythical County in Tennessee that all play music and all, mm. you know, play fiddles or banjos or, yeah. um, you know, okay. Dulcimers yeah. or whatever. And they're all just amazing. Yeah. No, that sounds, that sounds uh, right up my alley. Uh, yeah, you will love them. So, yeah. So, and I saw on your site, uh, the author talk network. Uh, yes. Would you like to, would you like to plug that a little bit here? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I did a panel this morning hey. <laughs> about research. Ooh, sorry about that. Oh, oh no worries. <laughs> um, for author talk network is a group of authors that I belong to. I think it's, I think we're 19, uh, maybe mm -hmm. 20 authors. And um, we all kind of do, panel discussions and um, podcast interviews and things like that. Most of them write women's fiction. We have some essayists, we have some mm -hmm. mystery authors. Um, so there's a lot, it's a good mix. Um, and uh, I think I might be the only fantasy author <laughs> yeah. in the group, but, uh, but we talk a lot about, um, you know, finding about writing and publishing and um, you know, whatever. And we just, yeah, it's just a network of folks to connect with, to, um, find, you know, if you need authors to talk at things. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, <laughs> that's fantastic. Things. Yeah. No, I love that. Uh, the, the best experience, like to me, the, the most fun part about writing to me is the networking with other, other writers. Like, I just love that so much, like going to conventions and speaking yes. at cons and stuff like that. Like, I love that so much. And the best uh, selling experience I've had was me and three other authors went in on a booth together at a convention in Atlanta and just had, I just had the best time, you know, just yeah. four oh, authors sitting around selling books. Yeah. Yeah. And some of um, author talk network was sort of born out of a group of authors that I, um, that I work with and we have a community online called bookish road trip. And um, we just, we love talking about, books and travel and yeah um so we do all of that and we host all kinds of author events and um 
takeovers and I have a biweekly interview program um, on yeah. there that, uh, you know, I interview people and read their yeah. books and talk about it much like this. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's good no, to find I, your tribe when you're, um, you know, in, in the giant soup of all the yeah. people writing these days. Which that, that, that perfectly segues into me. I'll do, I'll give a brief shout out to uh, the writing tribe Facebook group. Awesome. Um, it it uh, the founder is uh, she's one of the uh, uh, the volunteers at Dragon Con for their uh, for their uh, writing track, and uh, she started uh, what is to me it's to this date been the best uh, Facebook group for writers I've ever been a part of. You know, so many of them is just uh, a, a huge waste of time. <laughs> Uh, but this one has been so good. So, and it's called, you know, it's called the writing tribe because it is all about finding your tribe and it's, it's worked out. It's worked out great. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah. So, all right. To end, let's uh, let us know where can we find you and your books? Let's get all, all your social medias and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, well, my website is meredithstoddard.com. Um and uh, I am uh, Mr. Stoddard on uh, Instagram and TikTok, and uh, I'm on Facebook, Meredith R. Stoddard, and um, Mr. Stoddard on Twitter. And um, yeah, I'm I love engaging with readers, so yeah. absolutely, you know, folks should reach out to me. My books are available at most ebook sellers, um, and uh, in print through Amazon and Barnes and Noble and I think Powell's yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. So, yeah. I, that's something that uh, I, I think a lot of people would be surprised at who people who are interested in getting into writing is every writer I know has really been helped out along the way by someone else. And everyone is always so eager to kind of pass that help on. So like, it can be a tough and lonely business, you know, I mean, I'm sitting in my little shed in Virginia, you know, toiling away, writing books. And I poke my head out every once in a while and kind of look around out there to talk to, but (laughs) um, you know, it's, it can be a really lonely business. And when discoverability is such a, you know, such an important tool for us that, um, you know, anytime you can increase that network and, um, and touch base with other writers or readers or, um, you know, reading groups and book group clubs and yeah. whatever, you got to try to do it. Cause, um, yeah. that's, what's gonna, that's, what's gonna sell books. And, and I also, you mentioned dragon con, I haven't done any, um, anything like dragon con, but I love doing book festivals because I oh, love yeah. meeting people face to face and talking with them about it. I actually was doing a book festival in Richmond, Virginia, and um, met a, stu- a uh, young lady who was a student of ethnomusicology at Carolina. What? And I was like, this book series is for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. Uh, yeah. Like always, like seriously, guys, even if you're not that interested in the book, say, just take a moment to talk to the, to the author. Mm-hmm. And I bet you're going to learn something surprising that will probably end up making you want to read that book. I, th- I think you'll be surprised. Uh, uh, just, and also, you know, like you said earlier, being an author can be very lonely. And so, especially if you're working a booth by yourself, having someone mm-hmm. stop and talk, 
uh, sometimes, you know, and just engaging with you, asking about your book, like it really can brighten, brighten a, a lonely author's day. So, yeah, absolutely. So, well, Meredith R. Stoddard, it has been an absolute delight. I thank you so much for coming on here uh, and uh, hopefully get you back on again uh, at some point in the future. Uh, we're definitely not going to, to one and done people here. You know, we want to, awesome. we want to, in the future, we'll reach out and kind of catch up, see where you're at, uh, see what new books you've come out with and what have you. So that sounds great. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Oh, well, thank you. All right. Well, guys, uh, until the next episode, we'll, uh, we'll see you then. taking the time to check out another exciting episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. If you would, you know the drill. Give us a like, subscribe, follow, all that jazz. We'll appreciate you. Until next time, y'all. is part of the Tales by Bob network. To see all our great shows, go to talesbybob.com.